This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Wednesday, December 20th. I'm Julia Caulfield. And I'm Gavin McGough. In today's headlines, Patty Grafmeyer says goodbye. Ad critical of East End plan sparks conversation. Rainbows light up the holiday season. And a mountain weather forecast. But first... The town of Telluride in San Miguel County announced on Wednesday the government's declined an unsolicited offer from Dirk DePochter and Nicholas Farka to purchase the Diamond Ridge property. The government's purchased the 105-acre property in 2022 for $7.21 million with the aim of building 240 units of deed-restricted housing. According to a press release, DePochter and Farca offered the government $6.15 million to purchase the land. The two men are listed as plaintiffs in a lawsuit against Telluride in San Miguel County related to the rezoning of the land. Tune in on Thursday for a full story. Patty Grafmeyer is the Western Slope through and through. My grandparents were... Um, Lived up on Wilson Mesa, and uh, from that area, uh, my parents lived here in Norwood when I was born, and then we moved uh, to Olathe when I was in second grade, but then I moved back in 1977. Grafmeyer is Norwood's town administrator. She's been with the town since the early 90s. This year in July was 32 years. Grafmeyer says she didn't plan to end up working for the town of Norwood. She was working at Karen's Restaurant, and she says came to the town by happenstance. A friend of mine was working for the town of Norwood, and they needed help during billing season. That's when they did everything manually. And so I would go in once a month and help. From there, Norwood hired a new clerk and other staff. Grafmeyer was a top recruit. Since I had been there off and on, they, th- some of the board members came over and asked me if I would be interested. The rest, as they say, is history. Now, Grafmeyer is stepping into the next chapter. She will be retiring and stepping down from her role at the town in January. This has been a big part of my life for a long time, but we have great people and staff here that's going to take it and move forward. Looking back on her career, Grafmeyer says she sees her work with pride. I want to think that I helped it grow in a positive way. And and believe me, I would not take the credit because it's a team. It's a it's an effort. Uh, no one person can do make everything happen. So, um, but I'd like to think that I was uh, a component in in helping people work together. She points to the town purchasing a public works shop for the first time as a highlight. The town of Norwood purchased the the 19 acres just south of of Cottonwood Creek and land banked that for a while and now has just recently sold it to the school district for for the future school, which I, I'm excited about as well. In addition, she notes Norwood purchased a home for employee housing. And then we have the pocket park on Grand Avenue that it's a nice gathering place, I think, for in the summertime especially. Importantly, she notes Norwood didn't go into debt on any of those purchases. Grafmeyer says she's loved seeing Norwood grow over the past decades, but in meaningful, smart ways. 
I think that NARWID is very diversified at this point. We have a lot of different walks of life that live here and that contribute to making Norwood what it is. We have those that the ranching families that, you know, we want to embrace that, but we also have the other people that have come in and can have contributed to that, to our community. Looking to the future, Grafmeyer says she wants to see Norwood continue on that positive trajectory. We're going to have to grow to sustain and, and we do need that, but smart growth. And um, I would just like to see, uh, like, as I said, you know, we're going to need that school because a town needs a school to be um, a, a place, an inviting place for people to want to think about moving to. Uh, and more commerce. You know, we have a pretty thriving uh, Main Street but it it can always use we can always use more, so I would like to see more commerce be able to come to Norwood, uh, you know maybe another restaurant or two. Uh, I don't know. My dream was always a brewery. In that growth, Graf Meyer says Norwood is in good hands. She thinks of a plaque she received for her work. Probably not word for word, but you can judge a good leader not by how many followers but by how many leaders were created. And right now we have, I can't say enough about the team that's here and the people that are in um, the departments and how they're going to take Norwood into the next level. Patty Grafmeyer's final day as Norwood Town Administrator will be on January 2nd. The town is in the process of hiring a new town administrator. A short list of candidates will be released soon. Beginning in mid-November, a two-page advertisement began running in the Telluride Daily Planet, taking issue with the current draft of San Miguel County's East End Master Plan update. The ad is being put forth by a group of homeowners associations in the county's East End including Aldosoro Ranch and Greyhead, Ski Ranches, West Meadows, and Hillside, to name just a handful. Also endorsing the original advertisement was Lawson Hill. The Lawson HOA signature, as it were, on the advertisement came as a surprise to many in the community. Lawson resident Lee Taylor, who also chairs the County Planning Commission, which is working on the East End Master Plan, says he had questions for the HOA board, which he brought to their next meeting. Basically, as a, as a homeowner and a business owner in Lawson Hill, my question was, I'm pretty sure that unless I missed an email, we didn't, you didn't, we didn't get polled or anything like that. And this is a pretty hot potato politically, so I'm just curious what led to... Um, you guys agreeing to put Lawson Hill's name on the, on the advert. Taylor was not the only Lawson resident startled to see the name of their community attached to the ad. Multiple residents wrote letters to the editor opposing their community's inclusion. Resident John Wontrobsky saw the paper and was perplexed that residents hadn't been polled. Like Taylor, Wontrobsky went to the next board meeting. And they let us know that they feel, felt like they had made a mistake. And they had already withdrawn the endorsement from um, from the group that's opposing East End Master Plan. Um, and I think they sort of thought about it and said, "Oh, this wasn't a great this wasn't a great idea." And so they, yeah, they said they pulled it and they uh, 
and I noticed uh, that they had indeed done that. This was more or less case closed. But in speaking with residents about the story, the non-episode is an example of the conversation playing out in the community regarding the planning process. The ad takes specific issue with the Community Housing Zone District, a relatively new designation which aims to increase opportunities for affordable housing. The HOAs running the ad sent a letter to the Planning Commission expressing their concerns. A representative for Aldosoro Ranch shared a copy of the letter with Codo News. It takes issue with the fact that rezoning land into the CH designation does not consider the character of surrounding properties. So, a higher-density development can potentially be built in a traditionally lower-density area. Speaking as a member of the Planning Commission, Taylor says this anxiety surrounding high-density development might be misplaced. Any land rezoned to the CH district still must pass an approval process. Any rezoning application or development application has to go through multiple step processes and we apply the normal standards that we would apply that's applied to every other special use permit and development request in the county. The letter also takes issue with the CH zone district's high allowable density. The district allows a developer to build up to 20 units per acre, quote, permitted by right. The phrase permitted by right has been interpreted by some to mean any land designated for community housing could automatically use the full allowance. While Taylor understands the misconception, he says this is not how the county interprets the language. In fairness, it says right there in the language, use by right. Um, We know what that means from the Planning Commission standpoint because what that means is you have a right to apply for this use. But that distinction is not clear in the language, and so I understand why people could draw a different conclusion. And that has been um, a significant flashpoint. For Wontrobsky, the attachment of Lawson's name to a statement opposing community housing went against the very ethos of the affordable, deed-restricted community and its history. Lawson was created in a similar environment when there needed to be some changes in zoning, there needed to be some changes in density, and a lot of the NIMBYs did not want to see Lawson come together. Wontropsky uses NIMBYs, an acronym for Not In My Backyarders, as shorthand for folks who are opposed to any sort of development near their homes. And some, uh, I think, some very brave commissioners looked at the housing situation um, and the economy very holistically and uh, made the decision to go ahead with Lawson. And I think we look back on it and say, boy, that was a good decision. And we're at that same juncture now. And I just feel like we need more of Lawson Hills and not less. The Lawson HOA board declined to comment for this story. Taylor says the episode surrounding the ad resulted in a productive conversation and was resolved amicably. I appreciate that the board gave me an opportunity to come in and and make the ask and that we were able to um, exchange some questions and answers and ideas uh, about the EEMP and the CH Zone District. Taylor adds that although the greater community has yet to come to any sort of similar consensus, He hopes diligent work will continue on the East End Master Plan until it reaches that point. The holiday season is filled with lights and glitter, sparkle and shine. 
and rainbows. We are so excited to have a little bit of pride here in the winter holiday season. That's Geneva Shawnette, a Telluride organizer and employee at the Telluride Arts District. This week, Telluride Arts and Telluride are joining forces for a Telluride holiday meetup. I know for um, many uh, people in the Q plus community, uh, the holidays are kind of a hard time. And we also um, like each other all year long and want to connect, not just in the summer in June when traditional pride is celebrated. Seanette says it's a great opportunity to celebrate individuality, love and chosen family. You know, we have a really strong queer community um, here in the canyon and really in the county. Um, and in Colorado as a whole, in the United States. I mean, there's queer people everywhere. And uh, we certainly love to get together and support each other. Um, There's there's some folks who come from families where things aren't, you know, as comfortable at home because they're queer, because they've come out. And so having the opportunity to connect with other uh, really supportive and welcoming people, be them, be it other queer people or uh, allies is just really important to be uh, openly sort of advertising. We're here and we want to we want to connect with you. The holiday meetup is for the queer community and allies. Welcome. Hopefully uh, sort of show ourselves and be a gathering place for new people to town or even tourists or visitors who uh, would love to meet some people in the community. The Telluride holiday meetup will take place on Thursday, December 21st from 6 to 8 p.m. at the Telluride Arts HQ Gallery. Later in the holiday week, the Arts HQ will also host an ugly sweater party on Friday, chrome velvet on Saturday, and a Dolly Parton Christmas Eve on Sunday. Kenny Goldman will be playing piano on the 27th. Rounding out the holiday season will be The Naughty List on the 29th. A full holiday event lineup is available at telluridearts.org. Veterinarians are warning of a severe upper respiratory infection affecting dogs. Recently, the Animal Hospital of Telluride, in addition to the town of Telluride and the Telluride Marshals Department, joined Colorado State University veterinarians in sending out a warning about the illness. The infection presents similar to Bortadella pertussis, also known as kennel cough. But officials note the infections are more severe. They can cause death. Veterinarians have not determined exactly how the dogs are contracting the infection, but they suspect it spreads through nose-to-nose contact or through communal water bowls. Symptoms of the illness include coughing, eye and nose discharge, fever, and lethargy. Multiple cases have been identified in Colorado, with one possible case at the animal hospital in Telluride. In a news release, Dr. Steve Smolin with the Animal Hospital in Telluride notes dog owners should treat the illness similar to how we thought about COVID. He says, quote, Don't take your dog to parks, public trails, or other areas where your dog may encounter an infected dog during high-traffic times, unquote. He goes on to say, Do not allow your dog to greet other dogs or to drink from community dog bowls. Dog owners should make sure their dogs are up to date with vaccines. While not a cure for the illness, it keeps the immune system strong. Any individual who believes their dog has symptoms should isolate the dog immediately and call a veterinarian. Did you read a book in 2023? That's a raffle ticket. Maybe you read 50 books. That's 50 raffle tickets. Entered into the library's 2023 Book Challenge Prize Drawing. For many, taking stock of a year gone by involves reflecting on the books that kept you company over the past 12 months. 
And the Wilkinson Public Library is encouraging readers to add up their title counts from 2023 and convert those pages into prizes. For each book read since the beginning of the year, you get one raffle ticket, which could qualify for any number of gift cards to fabulous local organizations. Those wishing to participate in the 2023 Book Challenge drawing should submit their reading log to the Wilkinson Public Library by 5 p.m. on Saturday, December 23rd. The drawing will take place on Tuesday, the 26th. May the best reader win! The Colorado Supreme Court ruled on Tuesday that Donald Trump cannot appear on the state's Republican presidential primary ballot next year. The state's highest court said it's blocking the former president from the ballot because he engaged in an insurrection against the United States. The ruling upholds a lawsuit brought earlier this year by a group of Republican and unaffiliated Colorado voters. They claim Trump is disqualified from the 2024 election because he incited an insurrection on January 6, 2021. This week's decision reverses a district court judge's ruling last month that rejected the lawsuit. The ruling is likely to be appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Last week, Congress failed to pass legislation that would have compensated citizens in the U.S. for health concerns associated with radiation exposure. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, Clark Adamitis of KSUT and KSJD has more. This past year, advocates have been pushing for an expansion and an extension of the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act. The 1990 legislation provided funding to uranium miners, downwinders, and others whose health was adversely affected by industrial activities associated with Cold War weapons production. Until recently, legislation was attached to a defense spending bill. But last Thursday, when the National Defense Authorization Act of 2024 passed both houses of Congress, advocates learned the compensation legislation was not part of the $866 million funding package. It's disheartening. Justin Ahastein is the executive director at the Navajo Nation's office in Washington, D.C. Navajo uranium miners have been pushing for the new compensation language. We're talking about the Navajo people, a people who have demonstrated their patriotism over and over again, helping uh, the United States develop its nuclear arsenal to make it the power that it is today. And the thanks that our people get is disease and death. Elected officials from New Mexico and several other states are still pushing for legislation. As of now, the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act will sunset in July 2024. For KSUT and KSJD, I'm Clark Adamitis. As battery-powered electric vehicles continue to make inroads in our transportation system, renewable transit advocates are also looking at hydrogen fuel cells as an additional option. Many of them gathered recently at a forum in Boulder hosted at Via Mobility Services, which provides transit to people with limited mobility. The nonprofit is in the process of converting much of their fleet to electric buses. They're also looking at hydrogen vehicles. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KGNU's Sam Fuqua spoke with one of the presenters at the conference, Buford Barr, the chief operating officer for New Day Hydrogen. When we talk about hydrogen fuel cell vehicles versus battery electric vehicles, is it one versus the other? 
We don't believe so. We don't believe so. In the popular press, it tends to come off as an either-or. We look at it as, the, as they are very complementary to each other. Really, it depends on how you use the vehicle as to which fuel, which energy source aligns best with, with your uses. Where is the alignment for the hydrogen fuel cell in terms of the whole transit picture? Is okay. it individual car owners or so is it transit agencies? We see the uh, commercial fleets, think trucks, uh, as being the early movers into that space. Transit agencies most definitely, but the commercial fleets being, that, uh, being those early movers. We really see the light duty, the individual car owner, we see them coming into the, into the uh, market late. Uh, simply, simply because it's number number of stations. If I have one station, in the entirety of the state of Colorado, doesn't make sense for you as a private vehicle owner to go buy one of those vehicles. But a transit agency or a trucking firm where the the vehicles leave a central facility and come back at the end of the day. That's the exactly. We call them tethered fleets, where they're basically going out, doing the work that they need to do, and then coming back to the barn at the end of the day. That aligns well with what we're trying to do right now. Eventually, we plan on having enough of these, you know, stations where you know where it doesn't necessarily have to be that out and back, but definitely for the first couple, that's what we're envisioning. So, how does it work, hydrogen fuel cell? Uh, so, the hydrogen fuel cell. Basically what it is, we all know how the internal combustion works. You know, you, you get that spark, you get that ignition, drives down the piston, turns the crankshaft. That's not what, hap what happens in a fuel cell. Fuel cell is actually uh, an electrochemical uh, process. So we're taking hydrogen and we're recombining it with oxygen. The only emission from those, direct emission from those vehicles is water vapor. But in that process, we're able to strip off an electron. So that ends up being your current. That ends up being what it ultimately drives the vehicle. A motor like in an electric vehicle? It's exactly the same motor that you would see in a battery electric vehicle, yes. Okay, my layperson's brain says hydrogen is extremely flammable, so that makes me nervous. So hydrogen, you know, just like, just like any energy carrier, uh, definitely, you know, can be dangerous under the wrong circumstances. So you have to treat it with respect. But a lot of the physical characteristics of hydrogen actually tended to be a lot safer than what we're used to, the diesel and gasoline engines. For example, uh, hydrogen is basically 14 times lighter than air. So if you were to be in an accident, if you were to actually puncture the tank, it would actually dissipate up extremely quickly. And what, what is the role of state governments in incentivizing and moving this kind of transitions forward? I know California is a lot further ahead than Colorado or pretty much any place. Right? So California, and really it's the federal government and the state governments kind of working together in regards to that. They've, uh, California's put a put a, a lot of money into the establishment of hydrogen fueling infrastructure, which is a good thing. They've been focused predominantly on light-duty passenger vehicles. That's not how we see it really working you know, in the rest of the, uh, the U.S. We really see that being more of a commercial fleet orientation. But to go to your original question as far as what can they do, really it's that uh, you know, any, any sort of a new technology needs, needs help standing up. And that's where we see the federal and the state governments playing a significant role, specifically with our customers, allowing them to, uh, uh, to basically address the delta in the cost between where a fuel cell electric vehicle costs today versus where a diesel vehicle costs. So the federal and the state governments uh, coming in and being able to basically push down that delta so that, that, that there's a minimal cost impact for, the, for our customers. How far is the gap right now? 
How big? Uh, really, unfortunately, it depends on the vehicle. The, the larger vehicles have a larger gap. Um, you know, the, the passenger vehicles that you see, I, I've mentioned the Toyota Mirai several times. You know, that really is in, in line with, uh, with what you're paying for battery electric vehicles at this point. Uh, so it's very similar uh, cost delta that you see on the battery electric side. And electric battery vehicles are more efficient than hydrogen fuel cells? Yeah, so the efficiency really is driven off of uh, anytime you change the form of energy, you lose energy in that process. So battery electrics, once you've, once you've actually created the electricity, they're not changing the form of that energy until such time as, uh, as you are uh, changing it into mechanical energy. Uh, so they're very efficient vehicles. Uh, they have challenges, just like any technology has, but they are very efficient. They are more efficient than hydrogen vehicles. But the flip side of that is hydrogen can fuel up very quickly, very analogous to your, uh, to your diesel vehicles today, as opposed to the multiple hours that it takes to charge a battery electric. And you get similar ranges to what you, what you uh, see today with, uh, with diesel vehicles, with, the, uh, with hydrogen, whereas the battery electrics tend to be shorter range vehicles. If you think about it, so you've got the fuel cell, you have a tank of hydrogen, so very analogous to your gasoline fuel tank. So you have a tank of hydrogen that is basically holding your energy. It is feeding that into the fuel cell, which is converting it back from hydrogen into electricity. The next step for New Day Hydrogen is a facility. Correct. That's what we're working on right now. We've got a, uh, we've got a station where uh, we're trying to develop right now in the Globeville neighborhood, uh, you know, just north of, uh, of downtown Denver. I don't like the term disadvantaged community. I think it's a transportation impacted community, but it's a community that's been very open, very receptive to what we're trying to do. Uh, you know, so we're working very closely with them and trying to get that established. One point I'd like uh, you know, to get across to your listeners is the fact that what we're trying to do with hydrogen, we can do that now. We're not waiting, we don't need an evolution in the technology. We're, we're ready to do it right now. Uh, and really we need, you know, we're working down that pathway. We're hoping to get our first station up uh, here in the relatively near future uh, and really start bringing hydrogen in, bringing that optionality to the commercial fleet so that they can make a decision as far as what works best for how they use their vehicles. And that's Buford Barr, he's Chief Operating Officer of New Day Hydrogen, working on siting that hydrogen fueling station in North Denver, speaking at a conference on hydrogen fuel cells held at VM Mobility Services here in Boulder. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for snow showers tonight with minimal accumulation and a low in the mid-20s. Thursday, the winter solstice brings morning clouds gradually clearing in the afternoon and a high near 40 degrees. Thursday night should be partly cloudy with a low around 20. Friday, expect partly sunny skies with a chance of snow showers and a high around 40, followed by a snowy night with a low near 30 degrees. This has been the news for Wednesday, December 20th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206.